when my brother and I were kids, we went with my father one summer to South Padre Island. Dad wanted to fish and we wanted to play on the beach. That was the first time that uh, that my brother and I had been to South Padre Island. And uh, we, we stayed in this this open-air cabana on the very south end of the island. It doesn't even exist anymore. This was before the whole, before almost all of the condos at South Padre had been built. The first day out on the beach with my brother, I discovered the phenomenon called beach tar. If you know about beach tar, you know what I'm talking about. It was a very hot day. The sand was really hot. You know, as we walked on the beach, I saw these kind of black colored ribbons in the sand. I didn't pay any attention to them. We walked along. I didn't have any sandals on. After a while, I realized that the bottoms of my feet were solid black. I learned in, in that day that, that that tar that's kind of in parts of the beach, when you walk on it and the sand is hot, the sand literally bakes the tar into the pores of the skin of your feet. So I uh, went back to the cabana and I set about to try to get this stuff off the bottoms of my feet. Now, we didn't have Google back then because we didn't have the Internet back then. You know, that was back in the days when every telephone was hardwired to a wall. I had no tools to, to learn things like that mayonnaise or olive oil would get rid of black tar, right? All I had was soap and cold water. If you've ever tried to remove tar from your feet with nothing but soap and cold water, you know that it's a real feat. Uh, That was for Bob's sake, I'm sorry. It takes a whole lot of scrubbing, and after a while you come to the conclusion that your skin is coming off faster than the tar. Now if it's that tough to remove a little tar from your feet, how tough do you suppose it would be for you left to your own devices to completely separate the habit and the impulse of sin from your thoughts and your words and your actions. Zechariah 13 is about a miraculous cleansing. It's about a work, the work, by which God is going to cleanse His land and His people from every residue of sin and uncleanness. And that work is a a process We, as the people of God, are actually in the middle of that process in in some respects. And it's a painful process. Chapter 13, verse 1, speaks of a fountain. It says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. John Piper says that this one verse is the focal point of the entire book of Zechariah. And I believe he's spot on. So I'm going to spend some time on this verse and on how it fits in the the flow of this book. The central exhortation of the book that we've talked about over and over is in chapter 1. Anybody remember that exhortation? Yeah, you guys are good. I hear it quietly, but I hear it. Return to me that I may return to you. We've seen over and over in this amazing book that the only way that's going to happen is if God makes His people return to Him. And the way that works for Israel and Judah is the same way that it works for us, for every redeemed child of God. If God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. 
What does this promise mean in verse 1? A fountain will be opened for God's people for sin and impurity. Well, back in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, God said, Behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. And he said, And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. I believe this passage is talking about that event and more. The fountain in chapter 13, verse 1, is a cleansing fountain that is going to wash away the sin and impurity of God's land and God's people. Now, what's the difference between sin and impurity? Well, sin is every thought and every word and every action that misses the mark of God's character. The, the word from which that art, the word sin comes from, the word that's translated, is about missing a target. Impurity is the result of missing the target. Impurity is the condition of uncleanness in the eyes of God that applies to us because of our sin. The complete eradication of both of those things from God's land and God's people is what this fountain will accomplish. But what is the fountain itself? Well, it's clearly a metaphor because water doesn't actually remove sin. It's a picture of something. What is it picturing? In Jeremiah chapter 2, God calls Himself the fountain of living waters. And He says that His people have forsaken Him to hew for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. In Zechariah chapter 9, God declared to Judah and Israel, as for you also, because of the blood of My covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pits, the waterless cisterns that they made for themselves. So how is it that we get out of our broken, waterless pits that we have dug for ourselves so that we can come to drink of the fountain of living waters that is God? Well, we don't climb out. God pulls us out and sets us free that we may come to Him. Jeremiah 17, verses 13 and 14 says this, O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even Yahweh. And then the next verse says, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are my praise. So how do we who have forsaken the fountain of living water get healed? How do we get saved so that we may drink of that fountain? There's only one answer over and over in Zechariah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament. There is only one answer. God saves us. Now the fountain that will cleanse God's people and God's land is God Himself. Now you may say, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course, God's the one who has to cleanse us. But there are many who see us as the initiators of that cleansing in some sense. Who see the change in man's heart by which he, in a man's heart by which he turns to God, what we call, what the Bible calls repentance, as somehow man's doing. That, that we choose God. But if you look back at the stunning declaration in Zechariah 12, verse 10 that we saw last time, when does it say God's people will look upon Him whom they have pierced and mourn bitterly over Him? 
Not until God pours out upon His people, upon us, the spirit of grace and supplication. In Zechariah 3, when Joshua the high priest stood before the judgment seat, it's in a vision, stood before the judgment seat of the, the angel of Yahweh, who was also called Yahweh, and Joshua was standing there with Satan, Satan right at his right hand, standing right beside him, chomping at the bit to hurl accusations against him toward Yahweh. What did the passage say Joshua was wearing? Excrement-covered robes. That's a pretty vivid picture of our uncleanness before God when it comes to what we bring to Him, what we bring to the table. What happened to those filthy garments? Did Joshua just take them off and put on something better? No, Joshua stood there while God told His angels to take those filthy robes off of him and to clothe him instead with royal robes. How does our uncleanness in the eyes of God get fixed? God fixes it. Every one of these passages and hundreds of others in God's Word tell us in every possible way, from every possible angle, that the Apostle Paul got it exactly right in Ephesians 2 when he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Later in that passage it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By what? By grace. And see, grace is what you don't deserve, not what you do deserve. You don't want what you deserve. When? When did that happen? When you were dead. That's what the passage says. How did it happen? God made you alive. You were dead. God made you alive. How much of that is your initiative? God opens the cleansing flood that washes away our sin and uncleanness. And God is the cleansing flood that washes away our sin and uncleanness. He doesn't say, here's a fountain, here's the valve, have at it, and when you're all clean, come see me. See, the insurmountable problem with that scenario is that dead people don't have much use for valves. God exhorts us saying, return to me that I may return to you. And then in the same book, Zechariah, he says, I will make you return. Sell that twice in chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 36, which is another New Covenant passage, a beautiful passage, says, God says to His people, He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. So how do you get clean? God does it. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. I will save you from all your uncleanness. How much of that is your initiative? And then He says in verse 31, the next verse right after He says, I will save you from all your uncleanness. The next verse He says, then, then, you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. 
So when does godly sorrow over sin come into that picture? Before or after God does His work of cleansing? Well, at least in Ezekiel 36, it comes after. God gives us this heart transplant that makes us go from dead to alive. In the very next verse, after God says He will cause us to remember our wickedness, He says, I'm not doing this for your sake. That's pretty clear right there. Isn't it? This isn't my response to what you've done. This is my eternal decree based on my character, based on my covenant promises. That's what Zechariah said. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will rescue your prisoners from their waterless pits. That's the reason. It's not us. It's Him. We don't even get credit for feeling shameful or guilty over our sin. Because He's the one that brings us to that guilt. He's the one that brings us to that shame. That's what Zechariah 12.10 was talking about, right? See, God says all that to us. We say to God, Jeremiah 31.18, Lord, turn me and I will be turned. Jeremiah 17.14, Lord, heal me and I will be healed. Lord, save me and I will be saved. I'm not making this stuff up. The salvation by which we are turned from hopelessly unclean to spotlessly clean is not a partnership. It's a tsunami. It's not a transaction. It's a resurrection. It is the gift of life given to dead people. But doesn't God command us to believe in His Son? Absolutely. The point and the repeated focus of this book is not only on what God requires, it is on how it gets done. And this book talks about it over and over. Does God require us to be holy? Absolutely. And the answer to that is absolutely yes and absolutely holy. The whole law of Moses demands our holiness. The teachings of Jesus demand our holiness. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. The epistles demand our holiness. The question isn't whether God requires us to be holy. That is patently clear. The question is, what makes us holy? What makes you holy? And the answer, the universal answer in Scripture is God does. And that theme is all over this book. He is the fountain that cleanses. He is the only source of life and holiness. He is the one that rescues us from the holes that we have dug. Now why is this important? I believe very strongly it's important because if we get it wrong, we undermine and weaken the very foundation of holiness. There are many preachers today who seem to think that the way to fix what's wrong with Christians and with the church is to generate just enough shame and guilt in Christians to jumpstart them into getting with God's program. I'm not knocking shame or guilt. Those are both very powerful tools in the hands of God. But the shame and the guilt that God brings into the regenerate hearts of His people doesn't come because we have finally recognized that we haven't lived up to our ability. It's not the prompting of the Spirit to kick us in the pants so we will finally meet our potential. The shame and guilt, the godly sorrow that the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the regenerate person is the miraculous work of the Spirit by which we finally recognize our utter inability to do anything that is worthy of our holy God. 
See, godly sorrow, godly shame drives us to godly humility. It drives us to look to Him, not to us. I'm going to read a little, a little passage from a man named Horatius Bonar. He was a 19th century Scottish preacher and he's one of my favorite writers when it comes to grace. Outside of the Bible, of course. He said, Terror may make a man crouch like a slave and obey a hard master, lest a worse thing come upon him. But only a sense of forgiving love can bring either heart or conscience into that state in which obedience is either pleasant to the soul or acceptable to God. Everything, beloved, everything from repentance to faith to obedience, the entire transformation that moves us from unholiness to holiness, not only positionally but practically, is God's mighty and miraculous work. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We need daily and moment by moment to be looking not to the practitioner of faith but to the author and perfecter of faith. We need to be looking to the cleansing fountain. All right, that's verse 1. Verses 2 through 6 speak. They explain that this cleansing, this fountain that God is opening is a fountain that purges God's land. The cleansing that God will bring about that's going to eradicate sin and impurity from His land and His people is going to be a painful thing. It's going to remove from that land everything that doesn't belong in the presence of God. Verses 2-6 through are about that purging. And we must not miss the fact that God says He's going to cut these things off from the land. From the place where He's coming back to dwell in the midst of His people. That's huge. That is over and over in this book. In verse 2, God says He's going to eradicate, He's going to purge His land of three things when this cleansing fountain is open. Those three things are the idols, the prophets, and the unclean spirit. The first thing God will remove from the land is the idols. Not only will He eradicate every false god, He's going to cut off the names of those gods so they won't even be remembered anymore. That's as gone as gone gets. He's going to get rid of every substitute God that men have ever come up with. And of course, that's where substitute gods come from. Men. Can you imagine how big a pile of idol carcasses it would make <laughs> if God took all of the idols of mankind of all, from all the ages and He put them in one great big blob before He washed them away? Every residue of self-trust, of self-reliance, that men have ever come, up, ever come up with. Every pile of money, every beautiful car that men have decided was worthy of their affection. All the intellectual prowess of men, all the master's degree from people whose only real area of mastery was their own self-exaltation. Every doctoral degree from people who were renowned experts in the denial of God all the coolness, all the attitude, all the sexiness, all the persuasiveness, all the power of men in one enormous pile. And then the flood of God's cleansing fountain comes and washes that pile into the depths of the sea never to be seen again. And the only name that remains is God. 
The second thing that God says He's going to get rid of from His land is the prophets. And He's talking about the false prophets. And the third thing is the unclean spirit. And I believe those two go together. I believe that the unclean spirit that's being spoken of here is the, the spirit that has always energized the false prophets of every age. It's the spirit that draws men away from the worship of the true God to pursue gods of their own making. To pursue everything that is false and unclean. God's talking about His intention to eradicate every preacher and every purveyor of falsehood from His land. Verses 3-6 through six give a couple of vivid examples of what's going to happen to those false prophets in that day. Verse 3 says, If anyone in that day persists in uttering false prophecies, his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. After uttering those condemning words, the false prophet's father and mother who gave birth to him, it says that twice, will pierce him through when he prophesies. Way back in Deuteronomy 13, God told Israel what they were to do if any prophet or dreamer of dreams arose among them who, quote, counseled rebellion against Yahweh your God. If you think about what it would have been like to be a father or mother in the circumstance listening to what he said next in Deuteronomy, it's, it's pretty penetrating. He said, if your brother or your mother's son or your son or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, or the friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand, dad, mom, shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God. Be tough. You know, there's zero evidence in the Old Testament that any family in Israel ever carried out those instructions. Big surprise. There were plenty of false prophets in Judah and Israel. No shortage at all. But the reality is that Israel showed a lot more commitment to killing true prophets than to killing false ones. Read what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 23. Pharisees. Zechariah 13.3 says, A day is coming when the fathers and mothers who are worshipers of Yahweh will pierce their own son through because he has spoken that which is false in the name of Yahweh. I don't believe it's at all coincidental that the word pierce through in that verse is the exact same word used in chapter 12, verse 10 when it says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only begotten child, as one mourns for a firstborn. Finally, in the day that this is talked about, instead of killing the true prophets of God, God's remnant in Israel will mourn their execution of the preeminent prophet, Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they will turn their sword against the false prophets in the land until they are gone. Verses 4-6, through six, God explains just how desperately the prophets, the false prophets in that day will seek to escape that cleansing purge that He's describing in the previous verses. 
He says each of those prophets will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and they will not put on a hairy robe to deceive. I don't think when he says they'll be ashamed that he's talking about them feeling shameful or feeling guilty. I think he's talking about their actions. They will lie. They will deceive. They will act as they as if they are ashamed of who they are because they'll be trying to get away from that piercing that was just talked about. That life-ending judgment. They will not put on the traditional clothing of a prophet, which is a hairy robe. The word for robe or cloak here is the same word that was used when, in 1 Kings 19 when it was talking about the, the good prophet Elijah and the cloak, that the mantle that he wore, that he then handed off to his protege Elisha just before Elijah was taken up by the chariots of fire into heaven. By the way, you ever hear the phrase passing the mantle? It came from that passage. Of course, nowadays, <laughs> a prophet would be putting his life on the line for doing nothing more than wearing a fur coat. <laughs> According to verses 5 and 6, not only will the false prophet be careful not to dress like a prophet, he will blatantly lie about his identity to protect himself. He'll say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground, a farmer. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Talk about going for sympathy. I'm not a prophet. I'm just a poor farmer who was sold into slavery as a kid. Right after my friends carved all these gashes into my chest. Now some commentators believe that verse 6 goes with verse 7. That verse 6 is, taught, is prophesying Christ's death by crucifixion when it speaks of the wounds between the arms. I think that takes a little too much liberty with the wording. Uh, in Second Corinthians, I mean Second Kings nine twenty four, the arrow that killed King Joram struck him, quote, between the hands, and the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot and died. In Old Testament times, it was not unusual for the prophets of false gods to cut themselves ceremonially on the chest and on other body parts as part of their religious rituals. They did that because it's really hard to get your God's attention when you made Him. 1 Kings 18, God's prophet Elijah had a little contest with the false prophets of Baal. Many of you know the story. They set up some wood. They put a couple of sacrificial animals on it. But Elijah didn't let any of the people light the fire. Instead, he told the prophets of Baal, make your God light the fire. And so... For six hours, from morning until midday, they danced around and they wailed and they, they prayed to Baal, but no joy, no fire. So then they got serious. Verse 28 says they cut themselves according to their custom, so this wasn't the first time, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. They kept up, by the way, their wailing and their dancing and their cutting for another six hours until... Evening. And verse 29 says, but no one answered and no one paid attention. You know why? Because there was no one home. Of course, i got to quickly finish that story in case anyone here isn't familiar with it. It's a great story. After at least 12 hours of the false prophets doing their darndest to get Baal's attention to no effect, it was Elijah's turn. 
or rather, Elijah's God's turn. Elijah repaired the previously destroyed altar to Yahweh that was there at Mount Carmel. He dug a big trench about, around it. He filled the trench with water. He put a sacrificial animal on top of the wood of the altar, and then he prayed to Yahweh. And the text says, the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water in the trench. And then Elijah killed every one of those prophets of Baal, of Baal that same evening. Who would you say won that contest? <laughs> I believe the point here in Zechariah 13.6 is that no matter what subterfuge, no matter what lie, no matter what deception, those who have drawn men away from the worship of the true God try to use to get out of the judgment that is coming from the hand of God, they will not succeed. They will be betrayed, even if it's by the scars on their chests. They're going to be smoked out, and there will be no escape. You know what the most dangerous pursuit on the face of the earth is for a man or a woman to be involved in, or kid. It's not base jumping, or wingsuiting, or working on a bomb squad. Some people actually survive those activities. The most dangerous pastime that any man or woman can pursue is to draw men away from the true God. And there are a thousand ways to do it. You don't have to have a label uh, on you that says false prophet. You don't have to wear a fur coat. You don't even have to have scars on your chest. All you have to do is seduce men away from the worship of the one true God. There are many purveyors of falsehood these days. They seem to be getting bolder and more aggressive by the week. Debbie and I attended a presentation at SMU just on Tuesday by Frank Turek who wrote the book I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I love the title. After an excellent presentation, Frank fielded questions from the students in the audience, most of whom were there from evangelical Christian organizations at SMU. Believe it or not, those exist. My wife and I were grieved. Our hearts sank as we listened to one believing young man and woman get up after another, one after another, explaining the kinds of stuff that they're being bombarded with in their classes. When kids from God-loving homes go to college, they're told by fully tenured professors that the Bible is the contrivance of foolish and evil men. That the Jesus of the Bible is a myth. That people stupid enough to believe what the Bible says are enemies of the culture, hate mongers, intolerant. Yeah, they're intolerant. And they're told, our kids are being told in colleges that all such things are at best worthy of mockery and at worst worthy of elimination. It may soon be the case that you'll lose your job or be suspended from your high school or even be arrested for doing nothing more than reading a passage like the second half of Romans chapter 1. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read it. But you can be sure of this. When the day of God's judgment comes upon this world to purge His creation and His people from every residue of sin and impurity, those who have arrogantly persisted in pulling or pushing or dragging men and women and children away from trusting the one true God, 
from trusting every single word that he has revealed. Whether those false prophets be college professors or kindergarten teachers or fellow students, whether they be gurus or mullahs or priests or pastors or philosophers or journalists or script writers for television and movies or advertising executives or ditch diggers, if they have drawn people away from the humble worship of the one true God, they will answer to the judge of all men and they will be swept away. I mentioned pastors in that list. I'll briefly go one step further with that one. And I'm running out of time, so I'll try to try to be very brief with this. There are people in pulpits all over America and increasingly all over the world that are taking the hope of the believer that God says they can't, that we cannot lay hold of until the curse is undone, and they're saying, you can have it now. If you'll just listen to all the garbage that I'm shoveling at you and send me a little money. They reinvent God and the Son of God and the Spirit of God, turning them into servants of men instead of calling men to be servants of the Most High God and followers of Jesus Christ. They are enemies of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how big the cross in front of their church is. And if their hearts are not turned to God before He returns to cleanse His place and His people, they're going to be right at the top of God's hit list to enjoy the company of all the false prophets of all the ages. Because you cannot draw men away from God and get away with it. God is not mocked. There is an abrupt shift in verse 7. God moves from explaining what's going to happen to the idols and the false prophets in the land to making a direct address. And the one He's addressing is a sword. <laughs> he says, Awake, O sword, against My shepherd." against the man my associate, declares Yahweh of armies. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Now since swords don't actually sleep or wake up, I take this as a metaphor. And it's a very well-established metaphor in the Bible. In both Old and New Testaments, especially in prophetic passages, the sword of God refers to His wrathful judgment. It also refers to His Word, and that's kind of how God executes His wrathful judgment. He speaks and very, very painful things come down. But God is no longer talking here about false prophets. He's talking about the one He calls my shepherd, the man, my associate. He's talking about Messiah, Jesus. In Ezekiel 37, God talks about the day when He's going to regather and reunite Israel and Judah in the land on the mountains of Israel. And he says there'll be one king over them. He says, I will cleanse them of my sin. And they will be his people and he will be their God. And then he goes on in verses 24 to 25. He says, my servant David, this is 400 plus years after David died, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Yahweh Himself commands a sword to strike His shepherd, the king in the line of David who will shepherd His flock. The one He calls His associate. The word associate means companion. It means neighbor. It means kinsman. It means peer. Who could be a peer to Yahweh? His son. He says, strike 
the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. In Matthew 26, right after instituting the Lord's Supper with His disciples at His last Passover, Jesus quoted this verse from Zechariah as a prophecy that His own disciples would fall away. They would abandon Him that very night. And that's exactly what happened. And I believe that what transpired with His disciples that night and afterward is representative of what happened to Israel when the Good Shepherd, God's companion, was smitten on the cross in in fulfillment of God's eternal decree. The sheep, the flock of God, abandoned their true shepherd. Both the religious leaders and the people themselves in, in Israel wanted a king who would rule, not a king who would die. Upon seeing the empty tomb and seeing and talking with and touching the resurrected Christ, His own disciples who had walked away in shame and fear when He was arrested and crucified were graciously brought back by the working of God. Like those disciples, Israel as a people will one day be turned to Christ by the working of God. I believe that miraculous turning to faith is what Zechariah 12.10 was talking about when it said they will look upon Him whom they had pierced and they will mourn. But that national turning hasn't happened yet. They still have not looked upon their Messiah and fallen down at His feet in godly sorrow and recognized that He's the one they've been waiting for. Verses, at the end of verse 7, God says, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And I take the little ones there to be parallel with and synonymous with the sheep that He talked about in the verse just before. His covenant people, Israel and Judah. As a nation, Israel is still apostate. They are still in denial of Jesus. God's hand is against His own flock. But that will not be the case forever. Verses 8 and 9 proceed to explain God's intention toward the people who are dwelling in the land when these final events unfold. In verse 8, He says there's going to be a pruning. He says two-thirds in the land will be cut off and perish and the third, the remaining third, will be left in it. In what? In the land to which God is going to return to dwell in the midst of His people. This is talking about God's house cleaning prior to His return, just like so much of the book is. Now throughout the Old Testament, God preserved a remnant for Himself among the Israelites in every generation. A remnant that trusted Him and loved Him and sought to obey Him out of love. But the leadership and most of the people by far in Israel have chronically distrusted God and gone after all manner of false gods throughout their history. Just like all of mankind. Even when God's shepherd, God's eternal companion, their Savior was standing in front of them, they rejected Him. And it will be the same way when He returns the next time. Israel will by and large reject Him as they have throughout their history. Two-thirds of Israel will be wiped out according to this passage in God's last temporal judgment against His own people. I'm not talking about eternal judgment. This is a temporal judgment. 
I don't know what's going to happen with these people in eternity. I have a suspicion. Only one-third will remain. Only one-third. Now, I don't pretend to know with certainty that those fractions are to be taken literally. But the point is very clear. Most will perish and some will be saved. In verse 9, God declares His intention toward that fraction, that remnant. He says that He will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And then He says, they will call on My name and I will answer them and I will say they are My people and they will say, Yahweh is My God. By the way, the they in the Hebrew, the they in verse 13 is He. And the they in the second part is I. Because God is looking at Israel as His people, His firstborn. Go back to Exodus 4. You'll see where He told Pharaoh, you mess with my firstborn, I'm going to mess with your firstborn. I believe that when the day comes to which this passage is pointing, there is going to be a revival among the Jews like the world has never seen. I believe that God will turn the hearts of all who remain after this purging of the sons of Israel so that they will return to Him fully. They will join the faithful remnant of Israel from every age along with every Gentile who has ever been grafted into the covenant promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They will finally become part of the true and abiding household of God, the church to which I hope most in this room already belong. But this passage doesn't stop with God pruning out the weeds and calling out the remnant of Israel in the last day. It ends with His promise to refine that remnant. He says, I will bring the third part through the fire. This is critically important because God's saving work in the hearts and lives of His people doesn't stop when He brings us to faith in His Son and justifies us. We who are the redeemed of God are certainly not without sin. Not yet. But we are the redeemed of God. We're His treasured possession. Micah chapter 7 has this amazing statement, verse 18 to 20. It says, Who is a God like you who pardons the who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession. He does not retain His anger forever, but because He delights in steadfast covenant love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and steadfast covenant love to Abraham which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. God always acts in keeping with His character and His promises. You can't make Him not act in keeping with His character and His promises no matter what you do. That addresses the remnant. The rebellious remnant. That's me. We don't think in terms of things being tough or even challenging for God. After all, He brought the whole universe into existence with the spoken word. And while there is nothing that we can imagine that is outside of God's power, the Bible makes it crystal clear that God's work to eradicate sin from His people is a process. It's a drawn out process. It's not a snap of the finger. For us, it's an inherently painful process. We lose a lot of skin before the cleansing is completed. 
Now that's not because God couldn't accomplish our sanctification in an instant. It's because He chose not to. He chose instead to work change into His redeemed people in much the same way that a loving parent works change into His children. If you're a parent or a child, I suspect that most of you are at least one of those, you know that that process is far more painful than it is comfortable. (laughs) Growing up is tough. I believe that God's divine strategy for doing things this way traces back to His kind intention to display all of His marvelous character to, to us as His redeemed image bearers. See, we get to carry the personal knowledge of all that God shows us of His character into eternity. Even the things that we won't get to see in the same way in eternity. Like forgiveness and forbearance and compassion toward those who deserve only condemnation. If He just removed all our sin in the same instant in which He declared us justified in His sight through faith in Jesus Christ, we would not get the glorious experience day by day of seeing His attributes played out over and over and over. And even those who die the day they they come to faith are going to get to be there with us as we all celebrate the fullness of His character and proclaim all that we have beheld. The refining, the testing that makes us more and more like the one whose image we bear is every bit as much God's work as the work by which He brings us to Himself by which He turns our hearts to Him in the first place. The melting point of gold is at 1948 degrees Fahrenheit. The melting point of silver is 1763 degrees. If you're the gold or the silver, does that sound comfortable to you? To refine gold in the old school way, you have to melt it down, skim the impurity off the top that comes up because it's not as heavy as the gold, Cool the gold down, melt it again, do that over and over until there's nothing left to skim. If you're the gold, does that sound comfortable? Hebrews 12 tells us about the discipline of God by which He makes us share His holiness. The discipline by which God causes us to enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Go look up the word scourge in a Bible dictionary. He says, you had earthly fathers to discipline you, and you respected them. Shall you not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, those earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them but He disciplines us for good so we may share His holiness. First Peter 4 talks about uh, the fiery ordeal among you that you shouldn't be surprised about. It's the normal Christian life. He says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. See, God does not make your life tough this side of glory because He's mean or distracted or powerless. He's in the process of refining you to make you more and more useful for His eternal purposes every day that you're here. And if you belong to Him, you can be absolutely sure that the day is coming when you'll be glad He did it that way. (laughs) 
you won't just be glad, you will rejoice with exultation. You'll be very, very glad. So beloved, why should we not be glad now? Dear Father, Your declaration of the work of cleansing that You have brought upon Your people and Your place is uh, staggering when we look at it. It is also, Father, the cause for us who believe in Jesus Christ, it is the cause for great, great rejoicing and thankfulness and gratitude and humility and obedience. Father, You call us to love You and serve You because of the love that You have poured out on us because of the character that You have displayed to us in Christ. Father, when, when You don't have our attention, we pray that You would get it. And we thank You, Lord. We thank You every day that You are at work in us to will and to work for Your good pleasure. Make us useful, Father. We pray in Jesus' name.